wanted to uh, start out by just taking a moment to clarify uh, that disagreement I had with the book last week. I still believe what I said was uh, factual, but I wanted to make it more clear just in case it wasn't. I think the author and I fundamentally look at uh, the culture war in a little bit different way. And I think if you wanted to go back and look at the appendix on culture war, you might see, as you've attended my classes and the way that I've taught things, how he might teach things a little bit differently. And so when we come into terms like that, sometimes we can just have disagreements. I do want to emphasize that that doesn't mean I think that the whole book is terrible, okay, or that it's not worth your time to read a lot of the information that's in there, but that occasionally, just like any one of you, when I read a book as a critical reader, there are going to be things that I find that I don't disagree with. Okay, so let me clarify that term of uh, whiteness one more time and just why I have a problem with it. And I think it'll actually become really evident as we go through this week's lesson um, in this chapter. It's called the gospel question. Okay, because everything that we're going to talk about in this chapter is associated with those who promote the term whiteness in its defamatory way. Okay, <clears throat> so I said... What I said about the term whiteness, uh, they are using it explicitly, the people on the left who use it regularly, to foment a racial hatred no different in substance than white slave traders and the like inflicted on blacks at, the time, at, at one time in this nation. This, may, this term may have been appro appropriate during the era, during that particular era, for a preacher to use when preaching at a slave market where people are actually purchasing black people like they own them, okay, or to slave traders, where humans were stolen and, were, and per, used to perpetuate race-based chattel uh, slavery. This obviously isn't the ultimate goal today, okay, and the ultimate goal today of using the term whiteness, what is it? Today the ultimate goal is to upend Western civilization as a whole, which, though it has many historical flaws, problems, and unjust taking of life and murder, was fundamentally built on Christian principles. This is why when you hear the term whiteness used, you must say no every time. I remember, I don't have a problem with generalizations, but the generalizations have to be accurate to the time, place, and people to which they refer. Because the goal of a rebuke, a generalized rebuke on a people, is to condemn with the intention of being an instrument leading to repentance from those sins which they are uh, generally accepted in that community, okay, toward faith in Jesus Christ. If this is the goal of generalization, I think jettisoning, jettisoning the term whiteness will become um, beneficial to us, okay? And as we go through the le lesson today, it's, which is why I don't think using the term muddled or offensive for whiteness is, is a good term. I would, I would call it uh, damnable slander, okay? Damnable slander is what it is. And so, um, it, just like any other sin is damnable, okay? Just like any other sin is damnable without repentance and faith in Christ. So, that, so that's just a point of clarification for last week, okay? I felt it necessary because I, I wanted to make sure there wasn't any confusion about what I was saying, okay? All right, so let me pray for us. And then we're going to get into this chapter. If you guys want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. We're going to read there first. And then I'm going, to, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll get started. Lord, thank you for today. Uh, thank you for 
making yourself known in weakness. Lord, thank you that um, though we are all in great need all the time, God, that you are sufficient for all of our needs. Lord, thank you that um, in struggle, Lord, you show us our, our greater hope in Christ. Thank you for being willing, Lord, to discipline us so that our sins may be left behind. Father, I thank you for uh, the opportunity to speak today, Lord, and I pray that um, as we learn and think through this, that these things would be profitable to us. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 17. Okay, this is where the Ten Commandments happen. Because the question that really is raised in this chapter is, what is the distinction between law and gospel? One, we have to decide whose law we're talking about. And then the second thing we have to decide is, what is the purpose of the law? Okay? Whose law do we obey? Because remember the three texts that we talked about last week, equal weights and measures. Every man's case seems right until another comes and examines him. And then today we're going to talk about God's law, because that's whose law, like we've been talking about all along, that we need to pay attention to. But we're going to ask ourselves, is, is do social justicians, people who promote the leftist view of social justice, do they have a law that is equal in weights and measures? Do they have a law that... Uh, aligns itself with God's law, or do they create another law that can never actually be uh, forgiven in Christ or fulfilled? Okay, Let's, we're going to ask those basic questions. All right, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, that is generations in the context, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not cover your, covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything else that is your neighbor's. So I'm going to ask you a question out of the Westminster Confession Larger Catechism. It's question 101. 
What is the preface to the Ten Commandments? What is the preface? What precedes the giving of the Ten Commandments in this passage? Okay. I am the Lord. Somebody said verse 2 is the preface. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Okay. Remember that the law is many times talked about in our current culture as an ungracious thing. Does the preface to the Ten Commandments here present the law of God as an ungracious thing, or does it follow from something? It follows from something, right? So the law follows from what, what's the truth that the Lord is conveying in verse 2? Yeah, I heard slavery and bondage. That, that God delivers, right? And what did Israel's bondage and slavery typify for the New Testament? It typifies our slavery to sin. Our God is a deliverer, and he always has been a deliverer. And the national deliverance of Israel was God displaying that in a typical way before we reach the true antitype in his full manifestation in Jesus Christ. Okay? So let's keep that in mind as we think through the laws here. I'm going to read the first paragraph on page 110. Page 110. That's the start of the chapter here. First full paragraph, I should say. Actually, first two paragraphs. I'm sorry, I wrote that down wrong. How could you become, very first sentence, how could you become the most miserable version of yourself? How could you become the most unlikable version of yourself? How could you become the most anxious version of yourself? These may seem like random questions, but they have everything to do with social justice. The answers are not straightforward. I'm sorry, the answers are straightforward. To become the most unhappy version of yourself, spend all of your time trying to make your, <clears throat> your three best friends, me, myself, and I. To become the most unlikable version of yourself, spend all of your time trying to get everyone to like you. To become the most anxious version of yourself, spend all of your time try, trying not to be anxious. To become irrelevant, the church need only spend all its energy trying to be relevant. These four answers surface a deep principle that explains much of life in the universe. In an essay called First and Second Things, C.S. Lewis points us to the principle behind these ironies. Notice the title, First and Second Things. Okay, First and Second Things. What does he point us to? Every preference of a small good to a great or a partial good to a total good involves the loss of the small or partial good for which the sacrifice is made. You can't get second things by putting them first. You get second things only by putting first things first. So whenever we look back up at the Ten Commandments, there's a split in the Ten Commandments that most people recognize. So first things first, right? And if you put second things first, you lose the first things and the second things together. And this is what social justice does, okay? It doesn't give right to first things first. 
So what, what, are the, what is the split that people typically talk about? Or what is the first table of the law? What would we consider the first table of the law, if any of you have heard that term? Yeah, the first four commandments, and what do they do? They outline our duty to God. So this is actually repeated by Christ when he sums up the two greatest commandments. Okay, in Matthew chapter 22, I believe it's verses 38 through 40, his disciples ask him, what are the greatest commandments? Or it may have been a Pharisee, I can't remember. Anyway, he responds, the first is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is, like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, both of those commandments are contained in the Old Testament. Okay, Jesus didn't pull those out of anywhere. Uh, out of, I mean, out of thin air, I should say. He pulled them from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is uh, the passage where we talk about where it says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if I'm not mistaken, Leviticus 19 is where love your neighbor as yourself is paraphrased. Okay, so what, what do I want uh, us to think about this? What is the sum of the four commandments which contain our duty? Question 101 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's a larger catechism. It says, The sum of the four commandments containing our duty to God is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So how do we do that? What are the first things? Why is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Okay, the first commandment. And how does the Lord call us to do that? Can we arbitrarily separate the commands to honor God in the way that he has specified in the first four commandments and try to culturally keep the last six? The answer to that is no. Okay? This is what fundamentally social justicians err in. They err in whose law okay, and whose standard. They wholly reject the first four commandments. Even if they claim to be Christians, they reject them. They have to. It's the worldview. You can be inconsistent with it and say that you don't reject them, but fundamentally you're going to have to reject them because you don't use the same weights and measures that God's law uses whenever you accept this terminology and this worldview. All right, second things. The second table of the law. The question 122 in the Westminster Larger Catechism says this, What is the sum of the six commandments which contain our duty to man? And notice the difference there. The first thing is our duty to God, who is creator, and completely other than man. He's transcendent. He is uh, unquenchable in his holiness. There is nothing that can take away from who God is. We cannot understand him without him condescending to us. We cannot have a vision of what he is, who he is, or anything like that without a true vision, a true understanding, without his word in front of us helping us to understand that. And even though his word that he's given to us, right, cannot plumb the depths of God. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things of the Lord are his. He doesn't reveal to us all of his knowledge, obviously. We're not God. We're creatures. So then the second table of the law has to do with our has to do with our duty to man. Okay? Now, with that in, in, in our minds, I want to talk about what are first things. Now, he outlines <clears throat> of first importance the gospel, and he's right to do this in a sense. We have to keep a separation, okay? It logically flows from the Ten Commandments that the gospel is of first importance. 
He will, he will seek to separate the difference between believing in the gospel and acting in a just way. In other words, social justice people seek to conflate belief and faith with what they portray as justice. You have to work, okay, to pay off your debt of whiteness. You have to work to pay off your debt of social oppression. You have to work, you see, to pay off whatever atrocity they accuse you of or whatever um, inconsistency they accuse you of, whatever non-Christian thing that they like to say that you commit. Based on your skin color, the amount of money you make, whatever it might be. Okay? So, flip over to page um, 113. So, he, he, like I said, he, he, he sought in the, those couple of paragraphs there. I'm sorry. I've had a rough week, so if I stumble over my words, forgive me. I have a medical issue that I've been dealing with. So, so what happens when, on page 113, when we make social justice not a mark of consistent Christian living, but a requirement of the gospel itself, which is what I just tried to summarize. Notice, not a mark of consistent Christian living, but a requirement of the gospel. A requirement of the gospel. You will often hear this from even self-proposed Christian leaders who talk about social justice. That's that the gospel is social justice. They may not, the, the more consistent and outright and forthright people will say it just like that. The other people will say it implicitly in how they describe what the Christian life is. Okay? They, they functionally mean the same thing. It says, consider the tens of millions of victims of modern-day slavery. The good news now entails the imperative, work toward the liberation of human trafficking victims. <clears throat> On this scheme, you are saved by God's grace through Christ, plus your efforts to end modern slavery. Herein lies the existential conundrum. How could we ever know if we had done enough to end this vile and dehumanizing practice to be saved? There is a qualitative difference between fighting the injustice of slavery to become saved versus fighting the injustice of slavery because you are saved. You see that? That's an important sentence. It's not that our, our Christian duty is not to seek justice by God's standards, and I keep saying that because most of their standards are not just. Okay, By God's standards, we have to seek justice in the world. That's a requirement just as like we have to abstain from sexual immorality. Okay, It's in the same way. We have to abstain from lying and bearing false witness. Okay, We have to ensure that people who are legitimately oppressed, and if within our purview, okay, within our sphere of influence that we have, who are genuinely oppressed, it is good and right for Christians to seek justice on their behalf if they've truly been wronged according to God's word. Okay, does that make sense? But that is not the same thing as being saved by those things. Any more than abstaining from sexual immorality or adultery of any kind or lying of any kind is. Okay? We would never say, if we were presenting the gospel to other people, that you have to repent of that or God cannot save you. Okay? In the, in the, in the sense of, like, they must leave that plus believe to be saved. 
Baptism is probably the easiest way to think about this, right? Uh, many people believe in baptismal regeneration. The Roman Catholic Church believes that the actual water in the baptismal font is an instrument through which grace is infused into the infant or the person being baptized. So, in other words, faith plus baptism plus the other sacraments that they add on top of that are necessary for salvation. A social justice person says that faith plus you giving to the four. I'm sorry, poor, plus you giving to um, organizations and such that seek to end slavery. Okay, does that make sense? That is something that is fundamental to them. In other words, they promote a system that can never save. It is a system of unending guilt. It is a system that can only push the person further into uh, modes of repentance that cannot be quenched. He says this, In first century Galatia, the Judaizers added the imperatives of get circumcised and eat kosher to the gospel, incurring Paul's condemnation. This is the same page. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This problem is compounded exponentially in our day. If doing justice is either identical to or part of the gospel, then we do not merely add circumcision and a handful of dietary restrictions to the gospel. We add a theoretically infinite set of imperatives, counteract sex slavery in Thailand, fight cocoa bean farm trafficking on the Ivory Coast, abolish the carpet looms of India. List, the list of 21st century injustices stretches on and on. I am not arguing that Christians should be apathetic <clears throat> should be apathetic about such injustices. On the contrary, we should care passionately about such injustices. Okay? On the contrary, I'm sorry. On the contrary, we should care passionately about the dehumanization of God's precious image bearers and work toward a more just world. I am arguing that making the imperative to work against such injustices either identical to or part of the gospel is to lose the gospel. Given Lewis's first thing principle, to lose the gospel is to lose justice for the oppressed too. Flip over to page 114. It's under a game you can't win. It's the second full paragraph. It says... In a culture gripped by social justice B mindset, we find ourselves in the same unwinnable game. Social justice B professor Richard Day speaks of our, quote, infinite responsibility by which, quote, we can never allow ourselves to think that we are, quote, done, that we have identified all of the sites, structures, and processes of oppression out there or in here inside our own individual and group identities. Do you see how this becomes a game no one can win? As social justice be educators, Oslam Sensoy and Robin D'Angelo put it, we should work from the knowledge that the societal default is oppression. There are no spaces free from it. Thus the question becomes, how is it manifesting itself here rather than is it manifesting itself here? If everything is unjust all the time, since social justice B interprets all inequality as injustice, 
we end up in the chronically frazzled state of mind well described by an ex-radical infinite responsibility means infinite guilt a kind of Christianity without salvation to see power in every inter interaction is to see sin in every interaction there's where we lose God's standard right it's possible not to sin in a particular interaction it's possible to own a business without it being attained by oppressive means it can be successful without that correct right we cannot use the unjust weights and measures of social justice theory okay to create new laws that are outside of god's word new standards those standards will always be oppressive and they can never be met all that the activist can offer to ab absolve herself of Sisyphean effort until burnout, Edie's summarization is simpler. Everything is problematic. Skip down one paragraph. It says, If you know much about Martin Luther from the 16th century, then that state of infinite guilt will sound familiar. Seeing, quote, sin in every interaction, exerting Sisyphean effort until burnout, reaching the conclusion that everything is problematic are spot-on descriptions of the young Luther, not in the 21st century social activists collective, but in the early 16th century monastery. In the last 500 years, Western culture has become far less concerned about our moral standing before a holy God, but the paradigm shift from creator to creation has done nothing to curb humanity's need for justification. That's a really important sentence. We are created in the image of God. Social justice is a religion. It has its own tenets. It has its own means okay, of penance. Think of taking a knee. It has its own means of absolution in front of priests. Think of who they were taking a knee in front of. Think of who gets to declare you innocent or not. Is it Christ or is it a black person that you've never met? Is it a, a poor person that you've never met? Okay? Who gets to declare that? It is a religion of false gods that can only condemn. It's a really important sentence there. The... <clears throat> These needs are irrepressibly human because we know that there must be a sacrifice. We know that there must be something that satisfies the justice that is demanded of us. Remember, the natural law is the moral law of God written on every heart. However marred it might be and however much God has removed his restraining hand from certain individuals and societies because of their unjust behavior and their sinfulness like he has with America now, that law always remains and it is always a clarion call back to the son of god who fulfilled that on our behalf to lose that to miss that to misappropriate it to misidentify it to define it any other way than what the scriptures do is to create another religion and to violate the first table of the law in every way and to automatically lose the second We cannot, we cannot allow this false religion to live unchallenged by the gospel of Christ. Okay. We all seek catharsis somehow, he goes on to say. Catharsis meaning, uh, from the Greek, katharian, meaning to be clean. 
Just ask the Hindu and the Ganges, the Catholic in the confessional booth, the Muslim on his face toward Mecca, or the Jew at the Western Wall. Okay. Any questions? You understand how this, this affects everything. You're not being harsh by calling this a false religion. Okay. You're just not. There's too much at stake here. Page 116. <clears throat> Page 116. Second full paragraph we're going to read down through there. Social Justice B offers no grace, no forgiveness, no open doors to paradise. Why? Because it ignores the most important distinction there is, the creator-creature distinction. At the top of a Christian worldview, we find a creator who is not only just the ultimate standard by whom all our actions must be judged, but also the justifier of his creatures. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Do you guys realize or have you ever thought about the fact that uh, the Lord, the Father, did not forgive your sin without a payment? Do you dwell on that? God is both just and the justifier. And he can never forgive the wicked without payment. Can never forgive the wicked without payment. Christ literally took your sins upon himself in the payment that you deserved for those sins. Social justice B cannot offer that. God is both just in that he requires payment as a holy God and the justifier in Christ. What happens then, next paragraph, if we erase the creator-creature distinction? Instead of standing before a quick-to-forgive creator, we stand before our fellow creatures. Instead of having a God willing to take the nails in our place, we face a quick-to-anger mob, ready to drive digital nails to crucify us for every sin against its ever-evolving standards of righteousness. Okay, now here's the contrast on the next page, on page 117. Okay. Remember, their standards of righteousness are sand. They're not built on rock, which is Christ. Okay. God's law, page uh, 117, the second paragraph. God's law also brings infinite responsibility and infinite guilt in its first use. Here is the difference. The impossibility of keeping social justice B standards is cruel. Because there is no redemption, no grace, no salvation. It's a game we cannot win. The impossibility of keeping God's standards is a mercy. So the law is gracious. It shatters our self-righteousness. Okay? In Luther's words, God is trying us by, that by his law he may bring us to a knowledge of our impotence. Augustine, Augustine echoes, the law was given for this purpose to make you, being great, little, to show that you do not have in yourself the strength to attain righteousness, and for you, thus helpless, unworthy, and destitute, to flee to grace. Yes, to flee to grace, run to the cross, quit doing penance before creatures, and take your infinite guilt to the infinite Creator, 
who alone has the authority to declare us not guilty through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That is the good news we must declare as our first thing to this weary generation. Unending guilt and no redemption. Never a solid standard built on sand. Can't offer you anything. Can't give you the perspective that you need. Okay? Foundationally abhorrent to God. Okay? Foundationally abhorrent to God. This is why we have to return back to God's law as a standard for calling non-Christians to faith, which is exactly what we saw here, and then God's law as a standard of righteousness for us by the power of Holy Spirit in our by the power of the Holy Spirit in our sanctification in our daily lives. Because we can say along with the psalmist that the law of God is sweet to the taste. If we seek it in that man, in that mindset, right? We know that Christ has fulfilled it on our behalf. And the only way to offer salvation to those who absolutely hate God and ever and are just bitter and envious and look at everyone but themselves is to confront them with God's law and call them to faith in Christ. It's his word which is the seed that is planted that he grows by his own providence. You cannot convince someone who will not be convinced unless the Holy Spirit acts on their heart. That does not absolve us, myself included, all of us from the responsibility to step into that gap, okay, of hatred, of frustration, of name-calling, of job losses, and everything else, okay, to say what needs to be said according to God's standard. <clears throat> okay, any questions? I'm going to get us into an application point here that I mentioned. Remember, two weeks ago we talked about the roles of male and female. So I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to cover one more idea from the foundation stuff, and then we'll get into roles, hopefully, Lord willing, uh, two weeks from now, because next week end is uh, Easter Sunday. So it is my contention, and I'm going to say this probably every week for the rest of the time here, that social justice has the social justice in, in the negative way that we have been studying it only has the opportunity to grow up in the absence of Christians who have forfeited their place in society by not living as lights of the gospel. That's not law. That's God's call to holiness. Okay? That's not law. It's good and gracious. You will never be a more complete or at-peace person than when you are submissive to the Holy Spirit by God's Word. Everything else that you would pursue outside of God's ordained means of grace is going to bring you further away and more destitute of peace. Okay? Genesis chapter 3. Give me a second to tap here. So we pointed out a couple things. I'm just going to read that the Lord made man for a purpose. Okay? That purpose was for dominion. Remember, that was our overarching thing. 
And then we saw how dominion was to take place in chapters 1 and 2. Just because it's been a couple weeks, I want to rehash that real fast. The way that dominion takes place is by men and women fulfilling the God-assigned roles that they have. God did not just give Adam Eve, okay, so that they might live apart from one another without a coherent purpose. He gave Eve to Adam as a helpmate to deliver the kingdom to God, to conquer the world in the Lord's name. That dominion mandate is carried forth um, to this day, and it's now fulfilled by the Great Commission. Okay, it's now being fulfilled by the Great Commission. The Great Commission is the restoration of that plan, because Christ is King. He has all authority on heaven and earth. He has purchased that by His own blood, and all, according to Psalm two, must bow to the Son. Philippians two: Every knee will bow before Christ in this life or the next. Okay, so the <clears throat> what is the general desire then for men and women? Of God, according to that passage, the general desire of and purpose of God is marriage and godly offspring. Marriage and godly offspring. The general purpose. Hear that again. General purpose. Okay, of God for men and women is that they marry and that they have godly children. Okay. Remember, we read in Malachi chapter two, verses thirteen through sixteen and fifteen. He says, "Did." Did he not make them one, being God, with a portion of the Spirit in their union, that of marriage? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. The Lord cares how you raise your children. Okay? The Lord cares how you raise your children. Now, let's look at the the curse quickly. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So, how did Satan tempt Eve? He twisted God's word. He twisted God's word. He didn't remove every bit of truth from the statement that God had made to Adam, okay, in the previous chapter, but he twisted the words that God gave Adam. So, when Eve corrected the serpent in verse 3, did she state God's word correctly herself? No, she added to God's word because she said that God command if if they ate of it, what? Mm-hmm. You shall not touch it lest you die. Right? Did they did God command them not to eat or not to touch? Not to touch. She added another layer. Okay, I just want you to notice these things. Who was with Eve? And why is this significant? Adam was with Eve. He was next to her. God gave Adam the specific command himself before Eve was created, according to Genesis chapter 2. God was put there to protect his wife and failed to do it. I mean, I'm sorry, Adam was put there to protect his wife and failed to do it. He failed to follow God's command. He failed to intervene. Verse 7, what did they cover themselves with? Fig leaves, fruit of the ground. Fruit of the ground. What did they cover themselves with? The fruit of the ground. Does anyone take responsibility for any of this in verses 9 through 13? No, it's uh, pointing both fingers in both ways, right? Now, this is the part what I want to get to. In verse 14, we're told, Who 
the seed, that the seed of the woman will crush and undo the curse that was worked through the serpent, right? That we know that to be Christ. But look at the curses that are, are manifested toward the man and the woman. Because these are going to relate to what we're talking about going forward. Okay? That's why I wanted to hit this. So we had a foundational way that Adam and Eve were created. Adam was from the dust. Eve was not created like Adam. She was created from his rib. The difference is more than physical attributes. Okay? The difference is fundamental to creation. Okay? How could we then describe the Lord's curse on Eve in verse 16? We could describe it as a relational curse. What are the two ways in which she is cursed? Childbirth. Pain. In the very thing, in one of the primary ways and reasons that God created Eve to be a helpmate to Adam, he cursed her in that and hindered in that way the dominion mandate. Purposefully, as why? Why? Because as a consequence of her sin. Okay? As a consequence of her sin, childbearing would bring about pain and death. Okay? And death. What's the second way? Desire to rule over her husband in opposition to the natural hierarchy that God created. Okay? The natural hierarchy that God created. 1 Corinthians eleven thirteen. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. There is a hierarchical structure within nature. Okay? When this structure is subverted, it will inevitably lead to chaos in families. And as families are the functional training ground for those in society, society, ultimately society and culture itself will be destroyed. Why do you think there's been such an attack on marriage and the idea of living with one person in a sexual union for the rest of your life in order to have children? Why did, this, why did the sexual revolution happen in the 1960s? Because this is a fundamental principle to fulfilling the dominion mandate and bringing about God's kingdom on earth. Okay? It's fundamental to it. It's fundamental to it. Now, verses 17 through 19. Verses 17 through 19. What, in what way did God curse man? By his work. By his work. Notice how that correlates with the purposes in Genesis 1 and 2, okay, that God created them for. Man, Adam was a man of the dust, and he was commanded to tend the garden. Eve was a person who was created to relationally help with Adam in two ways. By submitting to and serving her husband and following his lead, and by bearing godly offspring and helping in the raising of those children. Both are essential both are essential, and neither is degrading. They're both God's purposes for men and women, okay? Neither is degrading. Thorns and thistles, by the sweat of his brow. Okay, and then finally, and this is all we're going to have time for, I want to close here. I just want you to think about these principles. Mull over them the next week, and then I'm going to talk specifically 
about men and women, Lord willing, um, if we have time after the chapters, because I believe that this is the foundational stuff through which we can uh, uphold the gospel and combat social justice. Okay. Uh, Lord willing, the next two weeks I'm going to talk specifically about what God calls men to do in marriage and in provision, and what uh, God calls women to do in marriage and submission, and what the typical sins are of both sexes according to the scriptures, okay? And what we need to watch out for. How do we fail in that? Okay, so how did the Lord clothe them in verse 21? And we'll end with this. Animal skins. Is that a difference between a fig leaf and an animal skin? What do we associate a dead animal with, biblically speaking? A sacrifice. So we have here a very dim picture of a sacrifice being necessary to restore communion to God. Also notice in Cain and Abel's story, what, what was Abel's work? It was work of the ground. What did Adam and Eve sow on themselves initially? Fig leaves. Work of the ground. What did God craft for them? And whose sacrifice did God accept? He accepted Abel's, Right? And how did Abel know that a sacrifice was necessary to please God? Right here. Okay? This is where you see that the thread of God's working in humanity and in history, though dimmer at the beginning and progressive throughout, is not two kinds of things. It's one relation of God after the fall to all of mankind that grows in its Lucidity. What I mean by that is it's, it's apparent brightness gets brighter. It gets clearer. It's like putting on a pair of glasses the further you go until we get to the pinnacle of all history, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Okay? So, Jesus is looking to restore all of these things. And we're going to talk about how he does that next week. Okay? Let me pray for us and we'll be done. Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to come together. Thank you for uh, just loving us the way that you do. I pray that we would consider and think about these things over the next couple weeks, Lord, and that you would help our hearts to, to just understand and to apply them to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.